0: I enjoy courtroom dramas, well, some of them anyway. What we really like are the courtroom dramas where true justice prevails, where wisdom carries the day and everyone perhaps grows at least a bit. It is especially satisfying when it is people who are in power but who are clearly in the wrong who actually are found guilty, found to be wrong. A Few Good Men, Aaron Brockovich, Twelve Angry Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, are some of the ones that are widely recognized as being the best of the legal and courtroom dramas. We want to see wisdom, truth, justice, and grace prevail. Far too often in real life, this is not the case, where corrupt companies with power and money are able to buy the verdict. The closing chapters of the book of Acts recount the Apostle Paul being falsely accused, falsely arrested, and then a series of legal trials that are bogus upon bogus. Will wisdom, truth, and justice ever prevail? Will corrupt power brokers finally get their day? Well, this morning we come to Acts 23 and see not the civil court, but the Jewish court in action. And in this passage especially, the Lord reveals several things about how we are to minister the truth and justice and wisdom and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church and also in the world. That we might see this before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are the God of revelation. Uh, You speak abundantly so that we hold the entirety of your revealed word that has been uh, given and preserved, and that we have now the freedom uh, to open it in our apps and hold it in our laps and to, uh, to worship you in the study of your word and to know that you are the God who speaks by your word. And so we pray that your, your Holy Spirit would come right now and bear witness to the reading and then the proclamation of your word that we might hear You speak to us. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning, we're going to start at Acts chapter 22, verse 30, and then run through the first 11 verses of chapter 23. Listen to God's perfect word. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, that you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Remember, the setting of this passage is that the commander, who next week we'll see identified as Claudius Lysias, has just been informed that Paul is a Roman citizen. And so the commander, having bound Paul in chains, is in a bit of a bind himself. Now, to his credit, the commander has effectively taken control of the situation. And shown an interest in understanding the situation. He's asked the crowd what's going on, but the crowd shouts different things, and so the crowd is no help. He then gave Paul permission to speak to the crowd after realizing that Paul was not who the commander assumed him to be. And then again, after the crowd started to go nutty, he steps in and takes control. He's going to have Paul flogged in order to find out why the people are shouting, and Paul then declares that he is a Roman citizen, and the commander was alarmed realizing that he had put Paul in chains. And so our passage begins the next day. Since the commander wanted to find out exactly what Paul was being accused of by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. So Paul has been released from the physical chains that had been put on him by the Roman authorities, and the commander has ordered the Sanhedrin to assemble. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish high court. And so this is a situation in which the civil authorities have ordered the religious authorities to assemble their court. So picture around 70 people who are the members of that actual court, along with the commander and a a number of guards, and then the public in attendance. Paul's opening words... Seem like nothing more than an introduction before he actually gets to begin his defense. He says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, Paul saying that he has a good conscience doesn't mean that Paul is saying that he is perfect. Certainly, Paul is very aware of his sins. He's aware of the fact that as a Pharisee, he persecuted Christians. He gave approval at Stephen's martyrdom. However, those sins have found forgiveness through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's conscience is clear. Our conscience is sometimes a guide. We know when we have done something wrong. In fact, Romans chapter 2 verse 15 describes that the conscience exists even for the unbelievers since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So the conscience accuses, we know we should do what is right and not do what is wrong. However, the law is necessary to tell us what actually is right and what actually is wrong. Our confused world tries to make up its own laws, to tell people to let your feelings be your guide. But again, our conscience simply makes us aware that there is right and wrong. But the word of God tells us what that right and wrong is. And so in this way, the word of God illuminates us to the path of freedom, guiding us in right and wrong that our conscience might be clear. We don't have to guess at it and guess incorrectly and become frustrated and still have a guilty conscience. The word of God shows us the way to the clear conscience and the path of true joy and peace. Now to strike an unconvicted person is illegal. There was, in fact, a saying, He who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes as it were the glory of God. And Paul may have had in mind Leviticus nineteen, fifteen, that we read earlier: do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. It is clear that the Sanhedrin is perverting justice. They don't want justice. They want Paul dead. They've already determined Paul's guilt, and all evidence to the contrary won't change their mind because their minds are set, and everything that they see is through this lens having already determined what is right. The Jews evidence disorder in the courtyard of the temple. They evidence disorder in the center of Jerusalem when the mob assembled. They evidenced disorder at the steps of the barracks, and now there's disorder again in the proceeding of the Sanhedrin. Presbyterian church courts can also sometimes show the same disorder. For all of our talk about doing things decently and in order, there are lots of times of disorder, especially among people who have already decided what they think is true without hearing the actual discussion. And so Paul calls the one who ordered him to be struck a whitewashed wall, clean and polished on the outside, but dirty and corrupted on the inside. Jesus likewise had said to the teachers of the law, you are like whitewashed tombs. Which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Paul rebukes the high priest. And then someone reproaches Paul for insulting the high priest. At this point in time, it could have turned into a name calling back and forth. But Paul takes the high ground affirming that the law says, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. and says that he did not realize it was the high priest. It's unclear as to why it is that Paul did not realize it was the high priest, but there are a couple of reasons that are given as possibilities. One is Paul simply had poor eyesight. Uh, that's kind of a well-known theme uh, throughout the writings of Paul um, from probably from the road to Damascus, when he had been blinded that his sight was never fully restored. And so his poor eyesight meant he simply didn't see that it was the high priest. Paul may also have been a bit sarcastic, essentially saying that a true high priest wouldn't do what Ananias had done. It's also possible that Paul did not know who the current high priest was. It had changed from time to time, and Ananias was a bit suspect to everyone anyway. Regardless, what we see is Paul affirm the law and also acting in a grace-filled way in a graceless and unjust situation. He treats the high priest better than the high priest is treating him. And that takes us to verse 6, which is truly interesting and also very much scrutinized verse. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, "My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead." And as a result of Paul saying this, the Sanhedrin breaks out into a debate among themselves and the Sanhedrin descends into chaos. There's four important takeaways from this verse. Paul shows wisdom, Paul shows truth, Paul shows justice, and Paul shows grace. First, Paul shows wisdom. We saw this last week in that Paul spoke the language of the people. Paul knows his audience, and he shows this again. Remember that before the crowd, he gave a personal testimony. Before the civil authorities, he gave a defense of his Roman citizenship, his legal standing. Before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, Paul gives a religious defense. Paul knew his audience, and with the Sanhedrin, he knew that one of the core differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They're sad, you see, right? So Paul throws it out there. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. In a room with Calvinists and Arminians, say that you're on trial because you believe in predestination. In a room with Presbyterians and Baptists, say that you're on trial because you believe in the baptism of infants. start a fight. In a room of Reformed folks, say that you're on trial because you believe in amillennialism, and there'll be a whole eschatology debate that goes on. Views on creation, women's ordination, gifts of the Spirit, dispensational versus covenant theology, the list goes on of things that religious people love to debate and draw lines in the sand, and they'll forget what they were arguing about in the first place because they'll just argue with each other get the PCA General Assembly together and ask a question about Robert's Rules of Order or Assembly procedures, and it takes on a life of its own. And so as we've seen, the same thing happens on social media and in all of our conversations. You start on one topic, but it devolves into chaos about opposing points of view that may or may not even be related to the original topic at hand. And we've all attended meetings where the group travels down every rabbit trail imaginable and can't stick to the main topic. So Paul knew his audience and acted with wisdom. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples for the first time, he said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And so there are some commentators who think that Paul was wrong in what he did here, that he simply played the Sanhedrin. Against each other. But most agree that Paul was showing wisdom not just playing games, that he was shrewd, but he was also innocent. Because not only does Paul show wisdom, but Paul spoke the truth. His hope is in the resurrection. And the hope in the resurrection really is at the heart of this issue. In his early missionary journeys, when he was first speaking in synagogues, what did he argue about the most? about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. For if Jesus was crucified but then raised, it's further proof that he is the messianic king who is even greater than King David. He is the eternal king. If Jesus is the risen and reigning king who sits on the throne in heaven, heaven, then he's king not just over Israel, but he's king over all the nations. And in Paul's final speech in the book of Acts, in Acts 28, verse 20, he will say that he is in chains because of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel is the hope of the resurrection made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And so Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. He has paid full the price of atonement and redemption. So when Paul says that this is really about his belief in the resurrection, he certainly knew that that would fuel debate that would paralyze the Sanhedrin. But at the same time, this really is about belief in the resurrection. Paul believes that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but has come to realize that the Messiah was not at all what they thought the Messiah would be and do. Jesus is not a military Messiah who would cause the world to be ruled by Israel become Jewish or die. Jesus was not a military Messiah, but the covenant Christ, who reveals God's promise to save all the world by his atoning sacrifice. King Jesus will rule, not as a Jewish king, but as the divine Lord of all nations. The Messiah did not come to make Israel great again, but to make Israel good redeeming so as to become instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Israel would be the first to know that the Messiah did not come to exalt Israel, but to exalt the triune God and bring all nations, tribes, and tongues together under the lordship of the one true and living God over all. It was the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus that inaugurates his kingdom reign. The Holy Spirit now applying this resurrection to all so that those who trust in Jesus will be resurrected to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth and those who reject Jesus will be raised to the judgment throne and face eternal damnation apart from God's grace and favor. So Paul shows wisdom. Paul speaks truth. Paul also reveals justice. The Roman commander Has convened the Sanhedrin because the crowd is shouting different things. He wants to get a straight answer about the accusations against Paul. He doesn't find out what the true accusation is against Paul because it turns out there isn't one. Paul isn't the problem. The Sanhedrin is the problem. The crowd is the problem. The confusion from false teaching and false understanding of the scriptures is the problem. And so this convening of the Sanhedrin was not really a formal trial. It was what we might call a pre-trial hearing. The goal was to hear the charge read and then to receive the plea of the accused. And Paul has essentially said that he is not guilty when he says, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. But the Sanhedrin can't even agree on what the charge is against Paul. They just want him dead because he's causing problems for them. They don't really want answers from Paul. They don't want to hear his defense. They don't want to consider his teaching. They don't want to consider that they might be wrong. They just want Paul gone and out of the picture. They do not want justice. They want vindication, power and authority. And so they aren't really interested in justice. But Paul is willing to take all the steps necessary so that true justice will win the day, because he knows. That true justice will win the day, as he proclaimed to the Athenians in Acts seventeen thirty one. God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus, who was raised from the dead, will return, and God will judge. With perfect justice. And so justice will win the day. But then finally, Paul reveals grace. In the midst of the injustice that he's facing, Paul continually shows grace to all those around him. He is unjustly struck in the mouth, replies angrily, but even apologizes for an angry reply in submission to the law. The root sin of being struck in the mouth doesn't get addressed, but Paul shows grace. The root sin of facing false accusations doesn't get addressed, but Paul shows grace. The root sin of stirring up a riot doesn't get addressed, but Paul shows grace. The root sin of power mongering doesn't get addressed, but Paul shows grace. The root sin of violence in the Sanhedrin doesn't get addressed. But Paul shows grace. And so does the Lord in the final verse. Appearing to Paul, he says, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In his grace, God has revealed that Paul's witness will not end in Jerusalem, but that he will testify to Rome. His witness for Jesus Christ will go all the way to the top, all the way to Rome. In fact, it's been Paul's desire to go to Rome all along. He's already written the letter to the Romans about his desire to visit them someday. And that someday is going to be a someday soon. God is seeing to it. And we'll read more about that in the weeks to come. But for now, let's consider again the gospel and its application from this passage. Paul stands before the Sanhedrin, aware that if not for the saving grace of Jesus Christ he would have been one of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. If not for the saving grace of Jesus Christ, he would be the one persecuting Christians. He would have been full of injustice and the deceit that he sees before him. Who would you be if not for the grace of God? Paul doesn't think that he is facing this as payback for all the stuff that he did. That has been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. We don't have to pay for the sins of our past. Karma is a lie. Grace is the sweet truth of the gospel. When Paul shouts out, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, he is also aware that, wow, but for the grace of God, I would still be a whitewashed wall. It's interesting that the Levitical laws, and we've read some of them earlier, are this mixture of moral and ceremonial laws. The ceremonial were simply practices to help illustrate and apply the moral. But the Jews had regarded the ceremonial as moral, and so they took the ceremonial laws literally as opposed to the figurative sense of driving to the heart. So there's almost a sense in which they would not realize that being called a whitewashed wall was even a criticism. Instead, they were almost saying along the lines of, do you really like how I'm painted? I did it myself. It's a little streaky over here, but I think it covers up the blemishes nicely, don't you? The gospel isn't a cover-up remedy. The gospel penetrates to the depth of our being. It drives to the heart. And so the gospel is one of complete restoration. We are not whitewashed walls. We are rebuilt, fully restored, splendid walls adorned with precious metals and priceless jewels. And the gospel goes into all the world to do a restorative work into every aspect of life and existence. So here's the good news. Wisdom, truth, justice, and grace will prevail because Jesus has already won it. It may not look like it most days, but it is the reality to come. And we are called to minister that reality now as we await its final reality to come. It doesn't look like it because we still live in a fallen world that needs gospel restoration. And so let me give you a quote that has gotten me through the last couple of months. It's from Bob Kellerman, who is the founder of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, and he says this, Unhealthy systems want to kill the one who is pointing out the cancer rather than killing the cancer. Let me say that again. Unhealthy systems want to kill the one who is pointing out the cancer rather than killing the cancer. We live amidst unhealthy systems. And when we try to address the real problem, the unhealthy system will want to kill us for doing so rather than actually getting to the real problem. But the gospel calls us to continue to pursue the real problem and to do so with wisdom and truth and justice and grace. And the good news is that wisdom, justice, truth, and grace will prevail because Jesus has already won it. And so may the truth set us free. Amen.